You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everybody and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasse and along with our producer Alex Diaz, we'd like to welcome you to the show this Tuesday morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you doing? I'm, I'm getting better now. I just ran into the studio. I literally just uh, put my butt in the seat about two minutes ago and all my deep thoughts for getting here and all the uh, thinking about the show has just flown out the window. So Alex did a quick hand over the water bottle. I'm still trying to catch my breath here. So it's teamwork, right? Oh, it's teamwork is right. Boy, I the traffic, I didn't expect that. But anyways, we're here and this, you know, this is a live show and we do what we can when these situations come up and all is good. All is good and we're going to have a great show ahead of us. So as uh, as with all live shows, feel free to connect with us. You can call in if you have um, any questions for our guests, uh, who, our guest who is Ray Pika and we'll talk about her in a few minutes. Or Alex or I, if you'd like to chat with us, our number is 416-245-1534. And as I mentioned last week, we're, we're trying to get out in social media a bit more. So with that in mind, we sort of streamlined our handles and so forth. So on Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook, you can reach us at the Health Hub RMC. We love to take questions and comments, ideas you might have for other shows. Always willing um, to do this for you. And these shows do get flipped over into a podcast so that you have them uh, ad nauseum to listen to. And if you'd like to email us, we are at thh at radiomaria.ca. So Alex, how was your week? It's been a bit of a blur, although it is only only the second day. But uh, over the past week, it's it's been quite busy. Yeah. But at the same time, the weekend was re- was relaxing. Is this catching up into 2018? Or? Um, it's just trying to get ahead. Trying to get ahead. Do we have any new shows on Radio Maria? Well, in Lent, we're going to be having a series on reflections for Lent each day. Oh, nice. They will uh, broadcast most likely at 10.30 and again at 7, 7.15. We have to double check that. And we'll um, invite our listeners to stay tuned to our social media feeds so that they can find out more that's coming up. Social media sure is uh, an important aspect of all this, isn't it? Yes, very much so. So we have a great show today, but before we get into the actual topic matter of the show, I get asked frequently about uh, cooking oils and what oil I prefer to use. And of course, I like to use the healthy oils. Healthy oils are full of wonderful health properties and phytochemicals that are important to our health. But when we are cooking with oils, we have to be very mindful of the smoking point or the the burning point of oil. And and that's the temperature in in which the heated uh, oils and fats literally start to burn. Um, And knowing the burning points and the smoking points of 
of oils and fats will help determine in what situation you can use them. You know, something with a very, very low smoking point or temperature you want, you know, maybe not to use in, in a saute. But what happens in healthy oils and when you when you heat them to the smoking point or beyond, you do destroy the the natural phytochemicals that are in them. But it also, when you're doing this, you're also creating free radicals. And we absolutely do not want to be consuming free radicals in our foods. So when you see the oil smoking, sadly, you're going to have to get rid of it. You don't want, it's toxic for our system. So what I want to do and what I will post on um, on our Facebook page and on Instagram is this little chart. And it's a short list of, you know, it's not every oil and fat, but it's a short list of the ones that I like to use and, you know, and their smoking points. So flaxseed oil, I generally do not cook with at all. It's got a very low burning point and it's um, it's about 225 degrees Fahrenheit. 100 degrees uh, Celsius. Next is extra virgin olive oil. A lot of people think that you cannot cook with olive oil, but you can as long as you're very mindful of that burning point. So that's about a 320 degree or 160 degree burning point for olive oil. And butter is a little bit higher. You can cook with that up to about 350 degrees Fahrenheit, 177 degrees Celsius. Then comes coconut oil. And that, that's similar to butter, 350 uh, and 177 Celsius. And then clarified butter, which is called ghee. And that's when you, you heat the butter and you're, you're just cooking with, you, you skim off the top of it and you're cooking with that clear part of the butter. That has a much higher smoking point, which is at 485 or about 220, 250 degrees Celsius. I have to look at my chart here because I'm really not so great with transversing the Fahrenheit and the Celsius. And finally, um, the other oil that I use, again, not as frequently, but a lot of people do use this, is avocado oil. And that's got the highest smoking point of the healthy oils that I would consider using. That's 520 or 271 degrees Celsius. So just a little tidbit for you. It is a common question but again, once you see that oil start to smoke, you have to get rid of it. You just don't want to take that chance. So be mindful. And we will have that up um, this week on, on our social media pages. Now, today we are talking about a really interesting topic. It's, and I'm not even sure how I, how I came to it. I think I saw this little commercial of a little baby scooting on its, on its butt across the floor. And my, one of my sons used to do that too. And, and then from that, I just started thinking about, you know, movement and so forth and, and the importance of crawling and that importance of crawling sort of led me to find Ray Pika. And Ray Pika is an early childhood keynote speaker. She's a consultant, an author, and she herself is a radio show host. She specializes in the education of the whole child, children's physical activity, and active learning. Ray has written 19 books, including What If Everybody Understood Child Development and Active Learning Across the Curriculum. Ray is an active blogger and a YouTuber. She speaks quite a lot, and it's going to be a really interesting topic about the importance of movement, uh, you know, right from the womb. And you may maybe break some myths that uh, some of us have about about walking in shoes and and another big one about uh, 
progress time. You know, we, we get into this idea that, you know, our child is so much better if they're walking or talking or doing all these things earlier on. And they, that may not necessarily be true. I know when I had my little kids, um, we had the doctor's office and he had the chart and what age they should be getting to what level of development. And I think Ray's going to speak to that a little bit today and, you know, maybe take some of the worry out of parents who aren't fitting how their kids aren't fitting directly into the chart. I think that we worry far, far too much and put a lot of pressure on ourselves as parents. So we're going to be talking about that, the importance of tummy time, crawling and sitting. We might touch on the difference between boys and girls and why it is so important to have activity during the school day. I think we've gotten... You know, a, a lot of that out of our of our day with the children, recess is limited and so forth, and activities on the playground. But Ray is going to talk to um, talk to that issue and why it's so important that the kids do have, you know, a, a, adequate movement throughout the day. So we will be back to talk with Ray Pika in a few minutes.
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Again, our number is 416-245-1534. You can reach out um, through social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at The Health Hub RMC. And if you'd like to join the conversation today, please hashtag child movement. Welcome to the show, Ray. Hi, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for taking the time. Um, we really, really appreciate it. It's, I know it's, it's an hour of a very busy day that you're spending with us, so it's going to be fun. I hope so. Uh, you know, I did have that second cup of coffee to wake up my brain, uh, but I, yeah, I'm I, also pacing. Oh, you're which, pacing? Yes, yes, which, you know, it's sort of a, a segue into how important it is to move the to movement. wake up the brain. Yeah, you know what, I, I've, um, I haven't had my second cup of coffee, but I certainly, would, certainly was jerked into action when I was racing in here. I thought, okay, you better be on point or things are not going to go very well today. So I, I've had <laughs> well, my sort of second cough of, cup of coffee and my adrenaline hit. With the adrenaline, yeah, I know. Well, I live just outside of Washington, D.C., and we are no strangers here to traffic issues, so you have my sympathies. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think that the, the lights were shortened. I think that I didn't run into any problem, but I think that they just shortened <laughs> the numerous lights coming in along Lawrence. But that's okay. We'll, we'll, move, <laughs> we'll move past that. How long have you been uh, in uh, childhood education? Well, sometimes it feels like 112 <laughs> years. But um, in reality, it's been this is 2018. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. 38 years? 38 years. And you've seen a lot yeah, of change, the then, I guess. to prove it. Yeah, and a lot of change. Oh, my gosh. A lot of change. Uh, in some ways, it's cyclical, you know, and, and uh, things just keep coming back around. And in other ways, there have been vast improvements. I remember when I first started, if I said the words children and movement in the same sentence, a lot of many early childhood professionals backed away from me as though I were uh, a dentist holding a drill. Mm. Um, now, early childhood professionals understand the importance of movement, not just for the physical self, but for the cognitive and social-emotional aspects of development. However, as you're well aware, we have many not-so-great changes, um, mm-hmm. things that uh, make me want to scream, and, you know, I often cry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and like the hair can't get any whiter, so I, you know, I may start pulling it out soon. I read things and hear things that are so wrong for children, and it just... Are we know. overthinking things? You know, you, you say back when you started, they didn't want to talk about movement, but there was a lot of movement. There was recess, there was play, there were balls. And now, you know, my kids are through elementary school, but... I distinctly remember so-and-so fell off the monkey bars. There go the monkey bars. So-and-so got hit with the ball, so no more balls in the yard. And, and it was, it, to me, I mean, I, I couldn't get over it. And the recess was shortened, I think, mm-hmm. from 15 minutes down to 12. And so, oh. yeah, a lot of these changes, you know, and then they come home. I mean, I don't know how teachers deal with, with kids in school when they can't blow some steam, for the lack of a better no, word. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, here in the States... The American Association for the Child's Right to Play, and apparently we need such an association. (laughs) That's that in and of itself. (laughs) Isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, They've estimated that 40% of elementary schools here have um, done away with recess. And it's 
<laughs> there are elementary schools that have been built and continue to be built without playgrounds, and it's appalling. I mean, to me, that constitutes child cruelty, and and it means that the people who are making these decisions don't understand child development or children at all, uh, and sometimes I think they don't like them. <laughs> You know, and for that, you know, I'm just I'm thinking of my own daughter-in-law to be, and and the the children. She's she's um, a teacher herself, and and just you know to give the teachers a little bit of a you know to deal with younger kids and the integrative classrooms that we have. You know, everybody needs a little bit of a break. You know, it's so beneficial on so many fronts. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, I don't know if you're aware of you know the recent research about sitting in general for mm-hmm. all of us how how health hazardous it is, um, which is part of the reason why I walk when I am on a phone call as opposed to continuing to sit at my desk. It's why I no longer roll the chair over to the printer. Mm-hmm. I get up and I walk to the printer. You know, it's just, just a step, but it makes a difference. So, yeah, and children, of course, need to move even more than we do, and we just ignore that. Why, why do they need to move more than we do? Well, they are the most active segment of our population, which these days isn't saying much because um, so many people are sedentary. But they were born to move. They were created to move. If you can imagine bringing home a kitten or a puppy and confining it, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, you know, to a... A high chair, or just not allowing it to do what it naturally is supposed to do. It's part of Mother Nature's plan. And when we ask children to sit still, sit still, sit still, we are certainly ignoring that plan. Um, we're just thumbing our nose at Mother Nature and saying that we know better, and we truly don't. So, Should we know the stages of childhood development? Should that be something that, you know, going into parenthood, a little lesson on, on the stages of development might be beneficial, even to teachers? Uh, well, it's surprising to me how few teacher education courses include child development. Um, I don't know about up there in Canada, but here in the States, it's it's rather sad because I think everybody needs to understand child development. If they're going to work with them, they need to understand them, don't they? And parents, I mean, for a while, <laughs> I was making a joke that probably many didn't find very funny, that before you popped out a baby, you would have to take a course in child development. Because if we understood them, we wouldn't demand things that are developmentally inappropriate. We wouldn't be asking them to do things that they are not yet ready to do. For example, organized sports. You know, uh, I had a mom who was an early childhood professional and understood child development say to me that she was struggling because in her community she was being pressured to enroll her daughter in the local competitive Mm -hmm. soccer program. And I said, well, how old is your daughter? And she said, two and a half. Now, (laughs) foot-eye coordination isn't fully developed until nine or ten. So how much success can you have in soccer when you're two and a half? You've just barely stopped wobbling at that point. I mean, and there are just so many 
so many reasons, physical, social, emotional, and cognitive, why organized sports are not right for young children, say below the age of eight, which is when most experts agree they should begin. But we, obviously parents want the best for their children, and they're suffering under a lot of misinformation right now. They're being told that they have to get started early or their children will be left behind. And it's not true. You know, the children who begin things when they're developmentally ready to do them catch up and often surpass those who begin before they're developmentally ready. And many of those children in the latter category burn out. You know, children who start specializing in sports at a very young age uh, 71% of them quit by age 13. So they tend to know better what's best for them. There's so many aspects of organized sports. Yeah, the pressure by the mm. parents, the pressure on the parents. You know, and then you're, you're given the best coaches, uh, theoretically, for the higher-up teams, which will just retard the the growth of someone who may, you know, eventually be... I mean, we've, we went through the whole rep thing for many, many years, and a lot of good came of it, and a lot of things that I, you know, I wish maybe I had done differently, or maybe someone else had done differently, but there is pressure, and you know, they, when an organization sees some potential in a child, they latch on. Oh, boy. Yeah. They latch on, they really do, and it, it is tough for parents. You know, everyone should be doing everything, but you know, it's funny, we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, and, and I'm thinking even that maybe parents are going to be a lot smarter than we were, or I was, uh, you know, our generation was, and I there's so much stress, and there's so little free time, and maybe that alone will be enough to help parents pull back on some of the huge amount of activities that the kids are having. I hope so. I, I, I do believe the pendulum is beginning to swing the other way. Um, there was a book called Perfect Madness, um, Motherhood in the Age of Anxiety, I think it was called, several years ago, and this mom had raised her daughter for the first three years of her life in France and then came back to the, the U.S. and was dismayed at the, the amount of pressure on them. And I don't, you know, and I don't say these things to make you beat up on yourself, Kathy, to make any other oh, parents. No. You, yeah. you were getting a lot of misinformation. And you thought, and, and all the other parents who enrolled their children, you know, in competitive soccer at three months old. Yeah, young age. <laughs> think that they're doing what's best for them. Mm -hmm. And there's no way parents can keep up with the amount of, of research, you know, and, and, and they, they typically have not taken courses in child development. So I'm not sure. I mean, maybe there's so much information online, as you well know. I mean, maybe that's the place to look. Um, maybe we take the cues from the babies when they come home. Maybe we just take the cues from what the babies want to do and, and trust our gut. You know, if we if we back it up from childhood sports and, and the older age, maybe we can get into the importance of tummy time and, and crawling and those first few steps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have gotten so far away from the basics. And of course, parents today are very, very busy, always in a rush. And so, the children tend to be what one colleague calls containerized, containerized kids, and another calls bucket babies. You know, they're spending 
I heard one pediatrician say they're spending upward of 60, that's six zero waking hours per week in things. Mm-hmm. And this is terrifying. You know, uh, they need to be held. Of course, they need to be touched. It forms their personalities. But they have to move the physical development, uh, the brain development. It, it's all tied to movement. But surprisingly, if we're looking down the road at reading and writing, you know, that cross-lateral movement, that, you know, the right hand, left leg, left hand, right leg, is is essential to reading and writing, which, which is not to say that every baby who doesn't crawl is going to have a problem with reading and writing, just in the same way that every girl exposed to, you know, size zero models is going to have an eating problem. But it, it's sort of what what the brain is, the disposition of the brain. And But why take the chance? You mm-hmm. know, babies were meant to spend time on their tummies. They were meant to crawl. Uh, imagine a baby who is always on his or her back. They're mm-hmm. not going to have to push up on, you know, to look around and see what's happening. So we have a lot of children with very low muscle tone running around these days. And as you said, the monkey bars have disappeared. We're bubble wrapping them because we are terrified that they will get hurt. And so they don't have the climbing equipment and the climbing experiences that they used to have. And... They're not developing the upper torso and the arms and the shoulders and the neck. And all of that might seem maybe even trivial to some. But when we understand motor development and child development, we see how all of these things are interconnected. I mean, it it impacts a child's fine motor skills, the ability to even hold a pencil or keyboard you know, which is considered more important these days than writing by hand, um, because motor development, it, it, it works from the inside out. It occurs from the inside out, from the top to the bottom, and from the large to the small, which means that until the children have developed their large muscle skills, their fine muscle skills, fine motor skills cannot fully develop. Does that make sense? They have to work on the arms and the trunk, the trunk and the arms, before the fingers Mm -hmm. can work efficiently. So climbing and crawling and all of those experiences that I had as a child are absolutely essential to young children. And it's it's just part of, of Mother Nature's plan. So making a point to put... I feel like I'm rambling. Oh, no, no, not at all. We're (laughs) we're actually coming up to break here, and I've got a whole bunch of questions that I don't want to to start asking because uh, we're going to push up against the clock. But what what I wanted to... So we have to make a, a, a noted effort to put... I, I don't recall putting, I always felt like they looked like turtles on their back when they were on their tummies. I felt sort of bad when they were, but we should make an effort to put them on their tummies. Oh, absolutely. And and to get them out of those containers, you know, out of the high chairs, out of the backpacks, out of the car seats. And so often a child is 
carried from the house to the car seat, from the car seat to uh, child care, and then maybe kept in, you know, a high chair for long periods of time or a bouncy seat, which aren't very good for the, for the children, uh, and then taken back to the car, in the car seat, brought home, put in a high chair, fed, and put to bed. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> and that's a busy lifestyle. That that you know that's 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 just part and parcel of a busy lifestyle. And it's I get it's it's this is why I wanted to have you talking because we need to we need to understand that this has to be attended to. So we are going to go to break, and I have lots and lots of questions lined up for you. So don't worry, don't worry, Ray. We'll have lots of time to to chat about lots of other things. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. I'm not about to give up because I heard you say there's gonna be brighter days. It's gonna be brighter days. I won't stop, I'll keep my head up. No, I'm not here to stay. There's gonna be brighter days. There's gonna be brighter days. I just might bend, but I won't break. As long as I can see your face. Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416 
1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are here today with Ray Pika. If you'd like to chat with her, our number is 416-245-1534, or you can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the Health Hub RMC. I have had a couple of questions come in, and I will get to them in a second. But before we move on from the crawling and tummy time, Ray, I, I have a, a question for you. Um, my, one of my children didn't crawl. They scooted on their butt. Mm-hmm. Taking the time to allow the kids go through these natural progressive movements, tummy time, sitting, crawling, it's helpful for muscles and so forth. But it, does it also help us or give us indication if there is an issue uh, in, in development? Or are we too worried about the growth charts and where a child should be at a certain age? I think we're too worried about the growth charts. And, you know, as you pointed out, they're in the pediatrician's offices, right? And we see that the average age a child should walk is 12 months. And, you know, 13 months go by, 14 months, we're going to start freaking out because our child isn't yet walking. Well, that 12 months is the average age, which means that a child is going to walk anywhere between 8 and 6 months, typically. Uh, I mean, 16, sorry. So... If 16 months come and gone, you know, or maybe just slightly before that, check with the pediatrician. Um, I I, I do think that we are too controlled by by that kind of, of information. And comparisons with other children, even among siblings, you know, doesn't really serve parents well because it's just nerve-wracking. Well, even within siblings, would the siblings develop the development, or would the siblings um, influence the development of their younger kids? You know, if, if the younger kids see their older ones moving around, are they going to perhaps move as well? I mean, those things might need to be considered as well. Yeah, I mean, our environment can absolutely impact it, certainly with, with speaking, right? I mean, if if you have older children in the household, there's a lot more talking going on than if it's just the one child. So they do tend to speak a little earlier. But I, you know, I remember my mother (laughs) boasting that I walked at eight months, you know, six months holding on and eight months without anything. This didn't make me even remotely advanced in (laughs) any way, (laughs) shape, or form. And I know that my, my brothers must not have walked my younger brothers at such an early age because I never heard my mother, you know, mention that. But it, it, hasn't, it hasn't made any difference, you know, in um, how any of us move or, or function. Mm-hmm. So it's going and past I, maybe the, 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 you're going stretching way beyond that. That's maybe a time to, to ask the pediatrician. Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. You know, only be concerned. Motor delays are, are pretty rare, but... They don't go away on their own. So that's why, you know, when I do my presentations for early childhood professionals, I tell them, you know, just to be as observant of the physical development as they are of every other, you know, aspect in their program. Um, you know, I don't, I don't expect them to be motor development specialists, but if they see that the other children are, are able to hop well in advance, that's on one foot, well in advance of, of one child, you know, then maybe just watch those mm-hmm. things. And, and, but there's, there's really, 
we are worrying far too much. Back to our intuition. Always back to the intuition in, in many cases. Now, there, somebody asked a question, and actually it was one that you and I had spoken about, the issue of shoes and toddlers or babies. Uh, when, ah. I was, when I was bringing up my kids, I mean, I love bare feet. But I knew, mm-hmm. do remember the doctor telling me about those little white booties and to shape the arch of their foot, they should be put in shoes. Uh, what's your opinion on that? The doctor was wrong. Okay. I, I absolutely believe that the doctor was wrong. I mean, cave people didn't run around in little white booties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we weren't, we weren't created to wear little white booties or those hard shoes. The arch will develop much better, I would think, if the child has that grounding experience, can grip the floor for strength and balance. And I did a, a blog uh, post recently on barefootedness, and I, it, it practically went viral. I mean, barefooted people are very passionate people. They, they spread the, the piece far and wide. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I hadn't considered was the, the number of, of elderly people, senior citizens, who, who since I'm, uh, you know, one of them, I, I really don't care for the word elderly, <laughs> but the number of senior citizens who wrote to me to say how it has positively impacted their strength and balance, you know, as, as adults. So, yeah, the, the feet need to... Need to grip. Need you need to the toes develop. need to grip. And uh, when I broke my leg, I was in a cast for quite a long time. And the biggest part, one of the biggest parts of my recovery was getting my foot strength back. They actually oh. had to teach me how, you know, they, it was physically grip with your toes. And so I, there's so many muscles in the feet. So yes. I, can, I can understand why, you know, just for, for uh, the small muscles and, and getting them firing properly, it does make sense to me now. It, it, you know, I just took the word of my uh, pediatrician at the time. It makes a lot of, of sense to me now. And just connecting with the earth, there's lots of positivity yes. with that as well. Yes, exactly. There are, there are many, many reasons. And people should, you know, just take a peek online at, at what some of them are if they're, they're concerned. Okay. Uh, I know that here there are some, quote-unquote, health regulations that prohibit child care centers and preschools from allowing the children to go barefoot, and that just drives me crazy. But um, my mother likes those health regulations <laughs> because she's always, you know, talking about germs and bare feet, but Trust yeah. me, it's not, a, it's not a concern. But if it's a choice between being barefoot and in stocking feet, like a, a lot of little girls are wearing tights or something, then, then I, I would, you know, I would say wear the shoes because it's much safer okay. than um, those slippy, slidey tights and socks. So Now let's get to the differences, if there are any, between boys and girls. That's always, you know, man, what is it, man from Mars, girls from Venus, or that story. Yeah. Are there actually developmental differences between boys and girls? Well, there are, but I I think that there are more similarities than differences. I mean, um, school, with all of the sitting that is required now, and why sitting equals learning is beyond me. I just don't even begin to understand it. Is it because this is the way we've always done it? Or, I mean, like you said, in early childhood, there used to be a lot of play, and of course, there was a lot of recess. And uh, uh, you know, my brain gets all muddled when I start thinking about this because I get, get anxious so about it all. <laughs> yeah, I get anxious and I get frustrated, and I want to cry for the poor children who are made to sit for so long. Um, th- 
it's much more difficult for boys in schools these days where they are required to sit for long periods of time. And to be honest, I'm not sure if that's a developmental issue, a personality issue. My worry, all children need to move. They need to move for their physical selves. I mean, we didn't even talk about the childhood obesity crisis and the health risk factors that are showing up in children five to eight and all those appalling statistics that I spout in my presentations. They have to move for their mental selves as well. I haven't stopped walking the whole time we're talking. There was a, a wonderful there's a wonderful brain scan um, illustration that I, I use a lot. It shows how little the brain is lit up after sitting and how much it's lit up after just a 20-minute walk. It's, it's really amazing that the idea that the mind and body are separate from one another is, is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's a ridiculous notion. So the girls need to move as well. Okay. My concern is that <laughs> when the girls are able to sit still, it's just that they're better at being compliant and that frightens me. We, hmm. we don't want them to grow up compliant. I mean, you know, we have the Me Too movement going on right now and the Time's Up movement, and, and females are finally saying, we're mad as heck and we're not going to take it anymore. Mm-hmm. So uh, we don't want to start their lives by teaching them to be compliant, which is a whole other topic. So we don't, the boys don't get a break and men don't get a break at being just different. Well, I, I, I did read Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus or whatever the heck that was, and I was surprised by some of the things, but I think it was there were, there were more emotional things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, there's the, the muscle strength and the size of their muscles and all of that, and so maybe that means that they need to have more physical activity or, or they maybe just have more energy in general, that needs to be burned off. Yeah, I think, you know, you know, er, earlier on in my parenting, I think girls were perceived to be able to concentrate more at a younger age. I don't know if that's true or not, but that was the perception. Um, the girls were able to concentrate more and the boys needed to get out and blow some steam off. So yeah, it, it, may, it may even be the... You're not arguing here whether that is is right or not, but I guess what you're saying, brass tacks, is that people need to move. They absolutely need to move. And young children need to physically experience concepts in order to truly grasp them. I mean, if you take a word like slow, it's just a collection of four letters that are abstractions in and of themselves. They're just symbols that stand for something. Um, it doesn't really mean anything to a child until they are moving slowly, looking around and seeing what slow looks like, maybe hearing slow music at the same time, physically experiencing it. The more senses used in the learning process, the more information we, we retain. So, I mean, I've come across so many examples of this you know that's where my advocacy for active learning comes from you know there was a story i came across of and it was probably in new zealand because it references kiwis 
parents at a, a, a meeting in a school, half of them were given brown and green crayons and coloring books, and they were allowed to color in the kiwis. The other half of the parents went out to the hall where there was a kiwi tree, and they were able to touch it, smell it, taste it. You know, so who do you think got the better experience of kiwis? Mm-hmm. You really need to use as many senses as possible. And the children need to get into high and low shapes to understand those quantitative concepts. They need to act out tiny and enormous to understand, you know, those adjectives. And, and those kinds of experiences stay with them. They last. Uh, who is it? Uh, Eric Jensen, who has written, I don't know, a bazillion books on brain-based learning, it says it's the difference between implicit and explicit learning. You know, if you hadn't heard the capital of Peru for five years, would you still remember it? But if you hadn't ridden a bike for five years, would you still remember it? And it's, it's an excellent example. Mm-hmm. So this is what you mean by active learning, interacting with our environment. Yes, absolutely. Like I said, you know, acting out the stories and, um, and the, the word comprehension and, and the mathematics, you know, adding one child at a time and subtracting them. So you've got the computation. You know, all those kinds of things are more, they, they just make a, a, a much bigger impression when the children get to see and hear and feel these things. Well, last last uh, week or last I think it was last week. I, I just did a little blurb on writing things down and how it helps <laughs> us more to achieve the goals when not only we think them, but when we write them down. And and that yes. was from a study. I, I you know I did I didn't get knee deep into it, but the study I just briefed over was you know the one side of your brain is is the cognitive side, but once you actually do the physical part of that mental thought, it really it. it wires your brain a little bit differently. It does. It absolutely does. And I have uh, right here on my bookshelf a book by Henriette Ann Clauser. It's kind of old right now. It's called Write It Down, Make It Happen. And so those kinds of things go back even further. But we keep having more and more research that validates the, the good old truths that many of us believed. You know, I keep coming across studies that show the importance of physical activity in schools and how it helps with learning, it helps with behavior, it helps, you know, students to have a better attitude towards school, which I think is absolutely essential. All of these things keep coming out as though they're news. You know, it's brand new information. But mm-hmm. when are we going to take the research and apply it is what I'm wondering. We have all the research we need. We just need to use it now. The policy makers, the decision makers need to, uh, they need to understand children <laughs> and yeah. stop being mean. You know, I mean, taking away recess is just plain mean. Well, do you think that our young children, their brains are being wired differently than ours because of the access to smartphones and iPads and computers. Is that a, a physical rewiring of the brain that the kids are going through? Yeah, I can't claim to be an expert in that, but from what I've heard and the people I've interviewed on my radio program and you know what I've read, it's, it's terrifying. I think brains are absolutely being 
uh, wired differently than, than ours were. Uh, we don't have as much research right now, uh, you know, as, as we do about the role of physical activity in learning and in schools, because this is all fairly new, right? But we do have research showing that um, eyesight Vision is absolutely being impacted, that just staring at a small screen is um, children are unable to track with their eyes from left to right. You know, no big deal. Uh, we know that it is impacting, it's, it's creating depression and aggression, and the more screen time children are exposed to, the worse it is for them. I want to cry every time I see a baby holding an iPhone. I, I bite my tongue a lot because I haven't learned how to address parents mm-hmm. <laughs> in that situation while getting slugged. Um, it, it's, that's, that's part of the misinformation that parents are being given, that digital devices are the answer, that digital devices will make their children smarter. It is not true. I heard recently that there is a, uh, an app or, you know, some whatever online that children can play, little ones can play with blocks on the computer <laughs> or, or whatever screen they happen to be holding. That is not the same thing. There's no tactile experience to that. There's no, there's no sense of how to build and balance things to, you know, to keep them from falling over. There's no cause and effect if they do fall over. There's, there's no... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you're getting frustrated just talking about it. I am. My blood pressure goes way up. We, we think that the old-fashioned stuff isn't enough. Crawling, playing with blocks. Oh, my gosh, playing with blocks offers children so much information and so much in the way of development. Um, Yes, we are in a new world, absolutely, and it's a digital world, and children will have to learn to experience that. But that earlier is better mentality, it's a myth. Earlier is not better. Okay, I think that relieves a lot of parents right now of a lot of, you know, misinformation, as you say. Do you have, Ray, uh, an, an idealized vision of what you would put a classroom together like? Oh, well, uh, there would be flexible seating and lots of room for movement. There would be learning centers. Um, we wouldn't be doing away with the dramatic play center. We, we would let the children learn through play as nature intended, oh, they would be outside a lot, not just because it's in the outdoors that they burn the most calories and that they're able to practice and refine their large motor skills, but because the outside light is so important. I know as a health person, you have to be aware of the benefits of of the outdoor light, its effect on the pineal gland. and And I mean, there are even studies that show it increases productivity, so the more natural light, the better. There are just, you know, so many reasons for children to be spending time outdoors. One of them is to learn to care for the environment. I mm-hmm. mean, if they never go outside, they, how, how will they learn to love 
what surrounds them. And what was that book? It was Last Child in the Woods by Richard Louvre, a very, very frightening book where he talks about nature deficit disorder. And he asks a six-year-old boy, do you prefer the indoors or the outdoors? And the little boy said, the indoors, because that's where the electrical outlets are. Ah, camping would be not so fun for him. No. (laughs) (laughs) It would be not so fun. And, you know, it's um, when I hear that there are children who don't want to go outside or that there are children, and this is very, very common these days, who don't know how to play anymore. They have been so adult-directed and adult-guided that they don't know how to make decisions for themselves. They don't, all they know how to do is imitate the characters that they're seeing on screens, you know, TV and movies, and, and they don't know how to take that play to a rich place where they're problem-solving and creating. Uh, creating. Yeah. You know, if there's one, we, we have no idea what their future will look like, right? Because think about how things have changed in just the last 20 years. So these little ones who are four and five now, 20 years from now, oh, the world could look so much different than it does right now. So how do we prepare them for that? I mean, even in terms of of, well, they're going to be digital devices, so they need to learn to use them. Well, the stuff that they're learning on right now is going to be different, you know, four years down the road. Mm-hmm. So that argument goes right out the window as far as I'm concerned. But the one thing we can be sure they will need is the ability to create and to solve problems. And we're not helping them do that in school these days. We're we're testing, 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 where there's supposedly one right answer for every question. I'm sorry, that isn't what life is like. Mm-hmm. And you know, where do we find the next Steve Jobs, for example? Um, the next Neil Tyson DeGrasse, is that his name? Um, where do those people come from if we've taught them just that there's one right answer? to everything, if they haven't used their imaginations to play and figure things out on their own, even to resolve conflicts on their own. (sighs) Well, I do think, I do think, you know, things may be changing. I see in my children their, their want and need for free time. And I think their understanding, I think we've been caught in a, in a, a knee-jerk reaction with the, the came so fast as social media. So if you had oh. one tip of the day, Ray, that you could give our listeners, what would that be? I just, whether you're an early childhood professional or you're a parent, I just want to make sure that you allow children to be children. Just let them be children in the way that nature intended, and they're going to be fine. We don't have to worry about them. You know, and I'd also like to say in terms of the monkey monkey bars and the bubble wrapping and all of that, we have to allow them to take risks. Mm -hmm. They have to take risks. If they live life protected from mistakes and from falling down and going boom, then they will be afraid of everything. They'll never be able to learn to take risks as adults, uh, it will come much, much more, uh, it, it, it will be very difficult for them as adults. 
Okay. So, you know, there's, there's so much. Thank you. <laughs> no, that's, so it's a much. great way. It's a great, lots of food for thought for sure in this talk. You can find out more about Ray and listen to some of her talks. Her YouTube channel is called Active Learning with Ray. And to learn more about her work and her published books, please visit her website. It's www.rayrayepica.com. I will put that up on the social media. Thank you so much, Ray. It's been a wonderful one. We could have talked forever. A wonderful conversation. And we will talk to everybody next week on The Health Hub. to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.